Welcome to Paper Boys. Thank you so much for joining us on this show. Today, we are going to talk about a very, very exciting paper about Enceladus and how it got these crazy features called tiger stripes, which are these giant cracks in the icy body, go all the way down to a subsurface ocean that could be harboring life. I got a little too nerdy about it. Uh, James bared with me, I guess. No, this topic was awesome. It's basically the interplanetary equivalent of a rude Goldberg machine <laughs> is what I is how I would summarize these amazing features. Um, and I think it's a great episode, a lot of excitement, really interesting topic. Plus, if you really want to impress your friends with your super indie recommendations about where we should send our next <laughs> interplanetary probe to find life, this is an episode for you. Yeah, it'll have all your hipster fodder. So yes. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. My name is Charlie, your wonderful host, here with my mm, eh, co-host. Equally James. great co-host. Nah, yeah, I'm just messing around. You're a more wonderful co-host than I am host, I'll say that. You're a pretty great co-host, <laughs> I will say that. Well, that was a feel-good episode. Yeah. Episode 69. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gee, I wonder. <laughs> Oh, we made it this far. We did. I haven't missed a week yet. No. And actually, uh, why don't we say this up front? We are about to embark on a marathon week of recording. Four episodes at least. Uh, this week. Six, we're going to do six episodes. Six episodes. So yeah, this is your little behind the scenes moment for Paper Boys. It is the week of December 10th. and It is December 10th today. And we are about to record two episodes. In two days, we're recording another two episodes, and two days after that, we're going to record another two episodes so that you, our wonderful listeners, have an episode of Paperboys every Thursday through the holiday break and a bonus episode on January 1st. You're seeing how the sausage is made. You are. The scientific say. sausage or the scientific commenter sausage. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The wannabe scientist sausage. Yes. The eventual to-be scientist sausage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Charlie, what do you have for us this week? Okay. Today I have a paper that, I know I say this a lot, but this was actually probably the most exciting paper that I've ever read for the for paper boys, or maybe ever. Just interacting with you this week, I can tell you're just like giddy about this. You've been talking about it all the time. You're like, man, I wonder if I could get a second PhD. I have said that, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to get my first PhD first, but... <laughs> then just tack on a second one. What's yeah, the... the second one's much easier. Yeah. No, so this one is about Enceladus. And I don't know if this will be like particularly exciting to everyone, but this is like what really gets me going. Plus, I watched this PBS Nova documentary series called The Planet, mm -hmm. which was sick. I was so going to ask what jazzed. it's about, but it's probably about the planets. Well, I said it's about Enceladus, <laughs> which is a moon of Saturn. Or... <laughs> Dumb joke. Dumb joke. Um, okay. Oh, you mean? Oh, you mean the documentary? Um, yes. What's it's about the planets? That was horrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. What's? Can you give us some like? Where does Enceladus fit into the greater solar solar system landscape or spacescape? Oh. Mm. So Enceladus is a moon of Saturn. It's not very big. It's about 500 kilometers in diameter. 
But what's really awesome about Enceladus is that it's one of the best candidates for life in the solar system. Wow. So we've observed that. So first of all, it's like kind of just a ball of ice and has some cool looking features on the surface, but it's all ice. Mm-hmm. But when Cassini went there in 2005, it observed that there were these plumes of water being ejected from the South Pole. Okay. And so it had these like big eruptions. And then they actually took Cassini and flew it through these plumes. Oh, wow. I mean, this was wild. I've seen the pictures of the plumes and they're, these are like, these pictures are magnificent. It's like very stunning. Yeah. So it flew through the plumes and did some analysis. And what they found was that it was not just water, but it was salt water. Wow. Okay. And so what that told them is that there was an ocean below the surface of the ice. Do you know what kind of salt it was by chance? Uh, Pink Himalayan salt. Oh, my favorite. Yeah. It was the same kind that you get at Trader Joe's. Great. Like um, a salt lamp? No, I mean, I think it's just salt water. I don't know. What do you well, want from me? Well, I don't I don't know if like... You think it was like KCL instead of NACL or something? I don't know if that would tell us anything more about constituents of life. No. So what did tell them, though, is some of the material they found in this salt water was organic. So there was like methane and propane and some other like organic molecules that were in it. Okay. And those are byproducts of life. And they also found molecular hydrogen, which is something that is most likely produced by hydrothermal vents. Okay. So here on Earth, we have at the bottom of the ocean, there's these vents that are shooting out like hot water all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's coming from, you know, inside the Earth. And those are like these oases of life deep in the ocean. Wow. Some scientists actually think that that's where life first originated on Earth. And why is that? What's so special about molecular hydrogen? Just that it's this building block and... Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a chemist. (laughs) No, it's just whatever it is, it's a signature of hydrothermal activity. Okay, so there's warmth, water. The water gives you protection from radiation. Yeah, so this icy shell that protects from radiation. uh, Salt water, much like our own oceans. Mm -hmm. And hydrothermal vents where we know life exists on Earth. Yeah, so like all the cold, dark places in the universe, like look for the warm, salty water. Exactly. So this, and this was like a recent, all very recent discoveries. Like I said, this was discovered by Cassini, which is in the last 10 years. Yeah. And and this whole, you know, finding organic material in these plumes. I mean, I remember this press conference. It was like a couple of years ago. Yeah, this is, I mean, that was like one of the biggest news releases about the actual potential for life in the universe yeah ever yeah so enceladus very important that's its place in the solar system since you asked i can't even tell that you're excited i know i I was thinking like you know this will be a quick episode it's a quick paper but here i am like just telling you about enceladus and i'm all pumped up (laughs) so okay what was the actual paper then why is it in the news so the paper has to do specifically with Uh, This one surface feature of Enceladus, it doesn't really have to do with life or anything, but some of the news articles that I saw popping up, New York Times says, how an icy moon of Saturn got its stripes. It had to earn them, I imagine. Yeah. Just like all of us. That's that's what the paper says. Space.com says, weird physics of tiger stripes on icy Saturn moon Enceladus finally explained. And then the independent, I hated this headline, but it said, Mysterious stripes on alien world that are like nothing else in our solar system, finally explained by scientists. 
Okay. It's like yeah, they're really it's... like bearing the lead there. <laughs> they're just like trying to, I don't know. To me, it's sexy enough to say like, thing on Enceladus explained. We learn thing about other planet. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, cool, I'm I'm on board. Yeah. But the independent's like, well, we got to really... We gotta really sex this up. It's an alien world that's like nothing else. Also, truthfully, I would turn away from that headline anyways. Just personally, you know, there's so much coming out about these exoplanets and stuff. And they're like very... A lot of the measurements are just hard to comprehend. And I guess fully appreciate. And it's like alien world. You know, it's sort of the downside to finding so many exoplanets right now. You become very desensitized to it. And like that gives you no context for how cool this is and how close it is relatively yeah this is a moon that like we've been to yeah that like we understand you know we're coming to understand very well absolutely so what was the actual journal paper then so the actual paper was published in nature astronomy letters just a couple days ago december 19th sorry december 9th 2019 and it's called cascading parallel fractures on enceladus hot off the icy moon hot off the presses uh the authors are Douglas J. Hemingway, Maxwell L. Rudolph, and Michael Manga, and they come from the uh, Department of Terrestrial Magnetism at the Carnegie Institution for Science in D.C., uh, and also Cal Berkeley and UC Davis. Okay, great. So tell us more about these cascading parallel fractures, or tiger stripes, because I think that's cooler. Yeah, so uh, they actually, the feature is called the tiger stripes. Uh, okay. I you know, I don't think that's a scientific name. It's just what they, it's just what the scientists call it. And we'll, we'll post some some of these cool pictures of Sat or uh, Enceladus that were taken by Cassini, uh, just so you can reference them on the website. They're really cool. Yeah, uh, sorry, and I, they illustrate the stripes very well. So we didn't even know that these tiger stripes existed until Cassini saw them in 2005. And what they are is just this: it's a series of large fissures in the ice surface. They're like 120 kilometers long, something like that. And they're spaced very evenly, like about 35 kilometers apart. And there's four of them. Oh, okay. Or like four and a half. There's like a fifth one forming or something. But they call them Damascus, Baghdad, Cairo, Alexandria, and Camphor, Sulcus. Sulcus is like, I don't know, Latin word for fissure or something. Oh, like in the brain. Yes, exactly. Like, like the folds of your brain. But since we have only known these existed for so long, and since we have very few opportunities to actually observe them, we don't really understand a lot about them. And mm -hmm. so in this paper, they sought out to answer four kind of perplexing qualities about them that they think might be related. What are the qualities? So uh, the four things they're trying to explain is, one, why are the tiger stripes located only at the South Pole? How come we don't see cracks anywhere else on the planet or the moon? The South Pole is where they witnessed the plume, right? Yeah, so those okay. those plumes are coming from these cracks. Okay. I forgot to mention that. Just to tie it together. Yeah, so these cracks, like, they find, they they go straight down into the ocean. Damn. And, like, the water beneath is warmer than the ice. Well, obviously, by definition. But, like, they go into kind of a warmer, you know, area of the, of the moon. So, and then the second question is, why are there multiple fractures and why are they parallel to each other? Third question is... What determines their spacing? So they're very evenly spaced at 35 kilometers. Why is that? Hmm. And then the last question is, how come we don't see tiger stripes on other icy bodies? There's lots of other moons that are these kind of frozen ice. Well, I say lots, but 
in like Triton and Europa are both like this, but we don't see the same features. Okay. I'm just looking at a close-up photo of the surface. It's crazy. Yeah. So, so you see the tiger stripes? Yeah. Yeah. They're like very prominent and unique. It's like insane, the resolution of these pictures from Cassini too. And there are thousands. I mean, yeah, you could spend all day. These pictures of the plumes this is amazing. Yeah. Where it's like kind of an eclipse almost. And so the plume is lit up by the sun. Yeah. And they're just shooting like way off into space. So cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Okay. Anyways, more Saturn per- porn. I know. Yeah. This whole, this episode is just going to be like us geeking out about <laughs> Saturn and Cassini. And, uh, so, okay. So, so those are kind of the four like things about these stripes that they really want to set out to answer. And they think there could be one sort of theory that helps explain all of it. Okay. So they set out to tackle these four properties, I guess, of the fissures that they've been witnessing on Enceladus. This isn't like one of those scientific hypotheses where it's really easy to test it out in a laboratory or anything like that you can't just like build a planet so how do they <laughs> no. go about i was gonna make a hitchhiker's guide reference but you haven't read it so it's sitting on my desk though it Thank is you to faithful listener anna yes our probably our biggest fan yeah arguably yeah and you can't even do her the honor of reading a book it's on my desk. Yeah, yeah. That's an honor in itself. <laughs> Just kidding. I will <laughs> read it. <laughs> the Great James <laughs> has, his, has your book on his desk. There are a lot of books on my desk that are to be read. Wow, twist the knife one. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, uh, but you're right. This is this is something you can't just like, we're just going to demonstrate this. We're going to make a frozen body and put it in space and see what happens. Yeah. Let cook for 10 million years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they, I mean, I think the methods behind this paper is like a lot of numerical simulation and the stuff that they kind of lay out in the main body of the paper is actually like fairly simple back of the envelope type of calculations Mm -hmm. of like kind of solid mechanics, you know, how things fracture under what certain stress and different things like that. Uh, And then on top of, you know, all of that is baked into, you know, decades worth of planetary science experience and and knowledge yeah probably like probe readings from cassini and yeah observations from hubble and all that so and that was actually what really struck me about this paper and what made me start thinking like huh maybe i should get a you know study planetary science was everything in it made so much sense to me but reading it i was like i would have never come up with this yeah i don't think i like it's one of those things where it's just like the scientific creativity was very impressive to me. You know, it's just yeah. like a very well thought out like piece of reasoning. And I'm like, yes, well, if that happened, then this would happen. And I understand how that could happen. It was just it's like it's a very like it's one of those things. It's an elegant explanation that explains all the evidence that we see. It's and you're like, I'm just impressed. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's probably one of those things where it, I mean, I haven't read the paper. But I imagine it's like when you see it laid out like that, you're like, oh, this makes sense. But if you're staring at a blank page, like, you know, that feeling like when you're at an exam and you're like, oh, how do I solve this? It was so easy when the instructor did it on the board. Exactly. Like, I would have just loved to been there in the room when, you know, one of these three authors had the first idea of, huh, well, maybe it cracked because of cooling or because of, yeah, cooling. Mm-hmm. is actually what they say so why don't i okay. why don't i read you 
uh, they have a little paragraph that kind of lays out here's here's what happened, and yeah. then the rest of the paper is expanding on that. Yeah. So I'll read the paragraph, see if it makes any sense to you. It didn't make a lot of sense to me at first, but let's dive in. Yeah, we'll break it down piece by dive piece. Dive into the fissure. So they say, we propose that secular cooling, which leads to a thickening of the ice shell and building of global tensile stresses, causes the first fracture to form at one of the poles where the ice shell is thinnest owing to tidal heating. Tidal heating. Which you were just telling me about today. Tidal heating, for those of you who don't know, is the heat that arises, especially in these moons as they travel around their host planet. They're subjected, like especially for these gas giants, to an extreme amount of gravitational force. And so as they get to different points in their orbit that are closer or farther away, the planet either contracts or expands, and this creates heat that ends up generally heating an ocean if it exists, which explains why you can have liquid water so far away from the sun, an environment that would normally be very cold. Yeah. And this is like, the, it's only since we've started venturing out into deep space that we started to realize there is liquid water there. They used to think that past Mars, liquid water couldn't exist. And yeah, and we know of multiple cases like Enceladus and Europa where we have a very strong hypothesis that there are these big oceans. Yeah, exactly. So I was going to read kind of that their whole paragraph, but that was only like sentence one of four <laughs> or five, and it's like already kind of confusing. Okay. So why don't we dive into this first part, which which I just talked about, which is why this happened specifically at the South Pole. Okay. So what they think is that over time, Enceladus undergoes you know periods of heating and periods of cooling for whatever reasons like there's sometimes where there's more tidal heating and then other times where i don't know it's further away from the sun and so it gets colder and if it's undergoing some period of cooling then some of the ocean that's beneath the ice will start to freeze okay and as we all know if you've ever left like a beer bottle in the freezer or something and then it explodes when water freezes it expands and so this freezing ocean expands and starts putting a lot of stress on the ice ball. So that there's like a whole crust of ice on the outside of the moon and the volume increases and increases the pressure that's building beneath the ice. Okay. So that pressure starts increasing and it puts all this tensile stress on the outer shell of the of the moon and eventually you know something's got to give. It's going to rupture. It's like you're it's like you're blowing up a balloon. Eventually, somewhere on the balloon, a, a crack is going to open up and then the whole thing blows, you know. For people who aren't familiar, could you explain what tensile stress is? Yeah. So uh, what's like a good way to explain it? I mean, it's just you start it starts pulling apart, right? So stress is like the internal force of like a solid object. Mm -hmm. So like if if you and I were, you know, pulling on opposite ends of like a metal rod, then it would be under tension and so there's tensile stress is just the force that was that is resulting from that okay similarly if you know let's say you you put a big weight on your table and the legs now are being are, now are supporting that weight they're feeling a compressive stress okay it's just the opposite of that so you imagine there's this whole surf like this whole spherical surface like the balloon the inside is expanding, and so it's pushing that surface out. But it's ice. It's not rubber. Yeah. So eventually the ice is going to fracture. And it's very cold ice, too. So it's not. it doesn't just deform. like. Well, so they actually kind of talk about this a couple different times. And this is sort of up against the limit of my understanding. But uh -huh. there are certain regimes in which ice is elastic, meaning that it will sort of deform. And then certain regimes where it's 
ductile, which I think means that it deforms without going back. And then other regimes where it's brittle and it'll just crack. Okay. But so it eventually gets to this regime where it, it splits open. Okay. And what, what that sentence that I read earlier says is that, you know, you can imagine if you have like a weak point in the ice, that's the place where it's going to split first. Just like if you get a rock against your windshield, you have a weak point, and then the crack starts to propagate out from there. Exactly. So the weak point is at the poles. Because of the way the tidal heating works, it causes the ice shell to be thinner at the north and south pole. Interesting. That's from tidal heating, not just like the planet spinning. Uh, I, I'm saying this. I don't even know if the planet spinning would cause that. I mean, I imagine that it that it could. The answer is yes, it's from tidal heating because they said so. <laughs> okay. I, I can't I just, tell you why, but... I wasn't sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's so interesting. Say, tidal heating causes it to be thinner at the poles. And so that's where the weak point is. So it ruptures. And they and they say in the paper, like, it's basically a 50-50 whether it's going to happen at the north or the south first. But once it happens, all that stress on the surface gets relieved. And so you're no longer going to have uh, this problem. It's like, which is why the fissures are so close to each other. And Well, and so not, this is just one fissure. Okay. So far. Okay. So this is this is just explaining why it happened at the South Pole. Okay. The crack opens up, and uh, they think that this was the Baghdad sulcus. Am I saying that right? Is it sulcus or is it sulcus? I don't actually know. <laughs> There's no wrong way to mispronounce it. <laughs> That's true, Dan Carlin style. So now you've got one big fissure. It's opened up, and it's kind of like you know if you've ever baked bread. The, if you if you put a slash in the middle of the bread, it's going to all kind of rise up like out of that and it won't cause a bunch of splits in the rest of the bread. I can tell you've just been like absorbing this paper over the last week. For people who don't know, Charlie bakes a lot of bread. And so this is like, this is like, this is my wheelhouse. A Charlie, this is like a Charlie baked loaf tied together in a nice, with a nice Enceladus bow on top. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Perfect. So, yeah. But so if you, you get what I'm saying, though. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, just coming back to it, are all of the fissures on the South Pole? Yes. Okay, so that explains how one of them formed, but then why are there more if that relieved the stress? So this is where it gets really cool. Okay. To me. <laughs> People at home are probably tuning out by now, like, wow, this sucks. No, this is exciting. So after this first one cracks open... Mm -hmm. um, what's crazy is that it cracks open all the way down to the subsurface ocean. So the crack opens all the way up and now you've got it. Now it fills up with the ocean water. Okay. It fills up like to basically like 90% of the way up the crack. Wow. So the ocean water was actually like <laughs> Sorry. under pressure. Episode 69. My mind's in the gutter. <laughs> so, I mean, the water was actually under pressure. Like and now it basically has a place to escape to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that so the the freezing of some of the ocean like caused the water to overpressure. Oh, yeah, that makes underneath. Sense. So which is why it then you know so then now it has somewhere to go. It fills up this crack, and you're uh, in a planetary beer bottle. Oh yeah, exactly the beer bottle in the freezer. Yeah, an analogy that anyone who is ever in college can understand. Yeah, it's just like freezing your rolling rock. Yeah, M me and my frat brothers you know <laughs> in case anyone's wondering i was definitely not in a frat <laughs> i have okay. a science podcast for god's sake <laughs> <laughs> for god's sake um go ahead so it fills up and what what i found really interesting actually is they say that these these eruptions out into space of the water 
is not actually from like pressure buildup beneath the crack, like spraying out. It's actually uh, the water in the crack is controlled boiling because now you have water exposed to the vacuum of space. Oh. And so it just boils off right there. Uh-huh. And this boiling is like so violent and so it's such a large volume that it actually sprays these big plumes up into space. Wow. So, okay. Does that mean that the plumes that were witnessed by Cassini happened like as this ice is cracking? No, no, no. So it fills okay. up and then that's why I say it's not just like the pressure being relieved. The water is there and it's just controlled boiling and it's and it's sort of roiling around so much that it doesn't refreeze. So this, I mean, these plumes could have been there for millions of years or I won't so say they, millions because they kind of estimate the time scale of all this later and it's not quite that long. Okay. But it's a somewhat continuous process. It's not this like transient thing where it's like ice cracks and boom for a year you have the stuff boiling off. No, we didn't just like get lucky. Okay. I mean, we got lucky in the on the geological timescales, but not on the Cassini timescales. Okay. Uh, so, so all that material that's erupting upwards, ninety percent of it falls back down to the to the moon and refreezes, or yeah. So it falls back down, and what you can see from those pictures that you looked up is that along the sides of the tiger stripe fissures, mm-hmm. there's these sort of ridges yeah. that are kind of like uphill before you get into the downhill of the of the crack. Yeah. And those ridges, they think, are all that erupted material that's coming back down and just landing on the sides. Oh. So it builds like, up. So it starts to build up there. Like the way you dig a hole and around the hole, it just builds up because. Yeah, exactly. Okay. If you're like digging a trench, then, you know, around the sides of the trenches, there's going to be little mounds of stuff. Okay. So uh, that's what's happening to all that, all that material. Wow. So now, I already said, here's where it gets crazy, but here's where it gets crazy. <laughs> so all that material now is like extra weight on the ice so it used to all be evenly distributed but now you've got this these two long rows of extra mass and they're pushing down on an ice sheet like at the edge of the sheet yeah now you can imagine where the crack is it's kind of like there's two ice sheets that are almost touching but then there's like a split in the middle yeah like a i mean like a fault line yeah, it's like a fault line. And so all that material is building up and you can imagine at the edge of that ice, there's nothing supporting it on the other side. It's like a cantilevered beam. Mm-hmm. So as the weight starts to build up, man, if we had like a video, it would be way easier to show this. But James, you can expl- you can kind of vouch that I've got my hand outstretched like it's the crack and I'm pushing down on it and it's bending. Yeah, I mean, so the only thing that's under this is water which would move basically it's not like right. a solid support so you basically have this beam it's like you could imagine if you've been in a pool and you try to like jump on a raft and it just flips yeah except like, except, except the raft is attached to something on the other side yeah well so, so now it just flip but so there's this torquing force as you put exactly. weight on it so it's torquing that sheet downwards mm-hmm. and this is kind of where the solid mechanics aspect oh. of this comes in so you're pushing it down. It's like a cantilevered beam. And you can actually calculate out based on the thickness of the ice and then the material properties of the ice. You can calculate where the max stress will be in that. So if you've ever like like broken a pencil or something, mm-hmm. you'll notice that it doesn't just break in the middle if you're bending the ends of it. It it usually breaks like a third of the way through. or you know, There's always like a, a characteristic point where a thing will break. Uh-huh. 
And that's because of the way that the way that all these equations work and the way that physics works. And, you know, again, kind of up against the limit of my understanding. But like a break a pencil after this out of pure anger, <laughs> pure amazement. But no, but so it the maximum stress, those internal forces will occur uh-huh. at a specific location. Yeah. And it's all dependent on these properties. And they calculate it out based on the thickness of ice that they think it is, which is about nine kilometers thick. Damn. And they find that the fracture point would be about 35 kilometers away from the edge of the crack. And let me guess, that's where the other fissure is. That's where the next fissure is. Damn. Isn't that insane? That's so cool. It's so cool. It's like uh, an interplanetary, like, Rude Goldberg machine. Yeah. It's just like this long process that causes all these. You're like, (laughs) you you couldn't, like, make this if you tried. Like, well, first let's heat the ocean with tidal forces. Yeah, it's like cooking. Like and you then, need the exact steps. Well, just add a little bit of pressure as it goes away and cools. Yeah. And then it'll crack. Yeah. And then it'll cantilever. <laughs> and then it'll crack again. <laughs> and then it'll cantilever again. And then no. it'll crack again. So this process can repeat. Wow. Because now you can imagine another crack opens up, splits all the way down to the ocean, material comes out, so, builds up. And you've got another infinite stretch of ice that can start to cantilever, and it splits again. Wow. I wonder what that says about the ice then, if these cracks are like pretty long and uniform. Maybe it just says that the ice itself is pretty uniform then. And it's, it's almost like a vent, like a, a vent for this water to boil off and evenly distribute. And then you get this like periodic pattern of the repeating lines Yeah, at yeah, certain totally. intervals. And, you know, they're not, like, perfectly straight and exactly no, 35 no, no. kilometers. But when you look at them, it is, like, you know, it's like you took some claws and you... Yeah. Uh, so they say that through this process, you would have um, these symmetric fissures forming in pairs. And so right now they have four with, like, a fifth one kind of appearing. And so they think that, you know, it's sort of just stretching out a little bit. And I guess uh, they mentioned that people have made similar arguments to explain the spacing of uh, volcanoes on Earth. Hmm. That, like, it's this, sort of the same, a similar type of process. You have a specific weakness in the crust at a point, and it cracks, but then... Well, I don't think it's the exact same process, but it's just, they, they say that, like, the idea of having this periodic spacing of volcanoes... Oh, They've invoked okay. similar arguments of, like, you know these things happen in pairs and they stretch out from one point and or even i mean even if you look at deserts is this isn't related to like you know geology but like the equator heats up the most the air rises it goes north and south that falls at like plus minus 30 degrees latitude you get deserts at those latitudes oh. the air sinks cools rises again and then you get deserts like another 30 degrees wow i did that. not know that yeah that's really cool yeah i mean Man, we should get like 10 more PhDs. Just stay in school forever. Honestly, that's kind of how I feel after this. We could, we would just never have to stop doing the podcast. Yes, that would be amazing. That's our that's our excuse. That's really cool. I mean, that's amazing. I'm looking at this picture again, and it's so it's so much cooler looking at this picture of Enceladus knowing that now. I know. It makes you feel like closer to it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Wait, so okay. I'm thinking about this right now. So it started off with the Baghdad Sulcus. I would imagine that one initial crack would lead to two cracks around it. 
but you said this happens in even pairs. Uh, or did I misunderstand like, that? I think you misunderstood. It's like in pairs emanating out from the original. Okay, so there's the original and then there's one on either side. Yeah, so it started with Baghdad and then the next two were Damascus and Cairo, which are on the left and the right of it. And then there is Alexandria, which is two away from Baghdad. And there's not another one two away on the other side. Oh, okay. That's why I was confused. So maybe we're like midstream, like maybe we haven't seen the fifth one yet, or maybe there's a reason why this process doesn't continue. Okay. Something different in the ice. I'm leaving that as a cliffhanger so you can ask me. Why wouldn't there be a fifth one, <laughs> Charlie? Uh, so this is, again, all of this is just like a, a very fancy hypothesis. But what they think is eventually the process can stop. Let's say like maybe a crack opens up and the eruption rate is not very high. And so not mm-hmm. very much material builds up. And so that stress, you know, we mentioned that there's a characteristic distance where the maximum stress happens. But the actual value of the maximum stress has to be higher than what they call the critical stress. Like it's the failure point of the ice. Okay. So if there's not enough material building up, you know, if you don't if you don't bend the pencil hard enough, it's not going to break, even though even though it's experiencing the maximum force somewhere. Okay. So if the eruption rate is slow, then maybe you won't get another fissure. Uh, they also think like as these cracks emanate away from the pole the ice gets thicker towards the equator. And so eventually the ice will be too thick to crack, even if you still have the same like rates of eruption. Interesting. I wonder, spoiler, as I was reading about Europa for various nefarious reasons. Tune in reasons. next week. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting looking at some of the Galileo temperature charts. Galileo, the spacecraft. The spacecraft, yeah that it measured on Europa mm-hmm. and there were these areas of heating and cooling that were strange. Like some areas are like that are supposedly of the same surface, same ice are like five or 10 degrees warmer. Really? Yeah. C five degrees C. So wow. Space Eskimos five Kelvin, whatever. Um, space <laughs> <laughs> sounds more scientific, but I'm like just looking at the geography and the topography of this image. It's like, you just want to know. It looks like there could be a lot of stuff going on. Maybe oh, yeah. Maybe like, it's colder there and warmer in the spots where it was crack or colder where it was cracking. I think ice gets more brittle as it gets colder. Well, I think they did. They do see that when you look into the well, and I mentioned this before, and it's kind of self-explanatory. But when you look into these cracks, it's warmer than the surrounding area. Oh, okay, okay. So like that already. Yeah. I mean, but you're right. You look at the picture far away, and you're like, eh, it's just a snowball. What could there be interesting about that? Yeah. And then you look in closer, and it's like a fractal. It's just like. There's just more and more and more to understand. And I'm looking at this. You said the diameter is 500 kilometers? Yeah. Very small. You could paint the United States across this like one and a half times, basically. I was thinking about it. I was like, you could drive around this in a day. Forrest Gump could run it in three months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but you could say that about a lot of planets for Forrest Gump, you know? Yeah. Amazing man. But I don't know. You could look at this picture forever and... Hopefully I'm not digressing too early, but I don't know. That's one of the cool things about actually diving into this research behind the popular news headlines <laughs> to <laughs> paraphrase our intro. Yeah, if only there was, you know, like a podcast that did this <laughs> that I could listen to. It it really does change the way that you look at these pictures. That And by totally you, I mean does. myself. The royal you. Yes, the royal you. King James. It's so cool. What, yeah, it's. I mean, this whole thing has been blowing my mind. I'm not even done yet. I feel like we're just out of breath. 
and we're ending every sentence on like a high intonation just to reflect our excitement. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, but there's more to this paper. I feel like you're trying to wind me down, but I'm still winding up, man. Tell me more. Actually, that's not true. It's like one last thing. Tell me more. But so there was there. I mentioned there were kind of four questions they were trying to answer. And we've answered three. Why at the South Pole? Why are there multiple? Why are they 35 kilometers apart? Mm-hmm. The last question was, how can we don't see this anywhere else in the solar system? Charlie, why don't we see this anywhere else in the solar system? Yeah, that's a great question, James. I'm really glad you brought that up. So um, <laughs> they think that basically it's because of the low gravity on Enceladus. And this one took mm. me, this one, this part was harder to understand than the other arguments for me. Okay. But I'm going to do my best. If I've lost you with my terrible analogies before, like James and I pulling on a metal beam, which is a useless, a useless analogy. That's the fault of physics 101 drilling us with bad analogies. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I'll, I'll do my best here. So when a crack like this forms in an icy shell of one of these moons, if you imagine like you're looking straight down into the crack, like let's say let's say you're kind of standing right where the crack happens and you're, you know, you're in one of those zorb balls, so you're not going to like die when you fall down. You're at you're right at like the front of this thing. They call it the tip. Mm-hmm. And uh as it's like opening up deeper and deeper into the into the surface. And so you're kind of like falling further and further down with it. If you actually measure the stress at that, at the tip of the crack where the kind of like the V meets at the bottom of it, yeah, they it's always experiencing tensile stress. So again, that tensile stress is like an internal pulling force. So you can imagine exactly why, like, you know, if you're you're pulling a cookie apart, you know, a warm cookie, when you pull on it, there's tensile stress at the, the tip of the V. Yes, and so so that tip where the where the split is forming in your cookie is always is always under tension, right? Yeah. Now, as you get deeper and deeper, there's also going to be forces that are building up along the side of the crack. Like, you know, if you were to sort of reach out to your left and to your right and try to like lift lift the earth there, it would get harder and harder as you got deeper because there's more material above you. Oh, okay. So when you get down really deep, there's like tons of pressure that is just from, you know, it's like if you swam to the bottom of the ocean, all the weight of the water above you is forming pressure against you right yeah so eventually that pressure would theoretically cancel out the tensile stress okay so eventually you'd get to a point where uh you know let's say your cookie suddenly cools off and you can't just like sort of peel it apart anymore because it's kind of like rigid now yeah so like those two forces cancel each other out oh interesting that is what would theoretically happen if you were on a larger body with more mass more gravity but what they think is that Enceladus just doesn't have enough gravity because it's so small. So that by the time that that crack gets down to nine kilometers deep, there's still not enough of that pressure to stop it from going. Okay, because the assumption that we were making in your previous analogy is like you have this big weight pulling it down, but the weight is the force of gravity pulling on this mass. And if you have a small planet, that force is just not as big. It's just not as big. And so... If the whole thing were a solid piece of ice, eventually the crack would stop somewhere, you know, like 30 kilometers deep, it, would, it wouldn't be able to open up anymore because that pressure would stop it. Yeah. But in this case, we have nine kilometers down is ocean. Mm-hmm. The ice stops. 
So it's going to keep pulling apart until it reaches the ocean. Yeah. So that's that's what their answer is for this question of why don't we see this on other on other bodies? There's no oh. other like Enceladus is uniquely small. When you actually in in reading about this, I saw there was kind of a chart that laid out like, well, here's the habitable zone of the solar system, and here's the snow line where ice can form, and and it had a couple of different bodies that were all like it was like Earth and Mars and uh, Europa, things where we think life could maybe live or have lived. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even notice Enceladus was on the graph because it was so it's so small compared to the rest of them. Wow. I mean, it, just to put it into perspective for our listeners, our moon is about six or seven times bigger than Enceladus. Yeah. By diameter. Enceladus would be like hard to see in the sky if it was where our moon is. Wow. If you think about it that way. That's crazy. I mean, not hard, you know. Yeah. But like you wouldn't. It's not like. It's not the moon. Yeah. It's not the seven moon. times smaller. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, by diameter. Is there anything else you wanted to add about this? Like, why is this important to know? How about that? All this excitement. Um, I don't know. <laughs> this is cool. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm being a little facetious. I just find it really fascinating. I mean, like, there's nothing in this paper where they say, like, they're thereby producing the conditions that life could be, you know, whatever. It was just like a really cool scientific explanation. Do, well, okay. I guess there's a lot of talk about Europa because there's the Euro- Europa Clipper mission that's coming up. Mm-hmm. But why don't we send something to Enceladus? Is it just because we've already been to Cassini and more recently than Jupiter? Well, not even, that's not even true. Yeah, that's not true anymore. It's With- because, I think it's actually because we discovered all this stuff about Enceladus much later. Oh, so you mentioned we had the Galileo mission, which was in the late 90s to Jupiter. We found out all this cool stuff about Europa. It wasn't until 2005 that we even knew really anything about Enceladus beyond what Voyager found, you know? Yeah. And I think as you and I have both been learning, the more and more we read and live our lives, <laughs> like it's a 15-year process to even get people to listen to you about these missions probably yeah so i mean you if can you're, actually, if you're trying to drive it if you google this now you will see you know like this year or last year there are like planetary scientists who are saying europa is old hat we should be going to enceladus like, yeah but now we're almost too deep into the the spending game on europa clipper it was hard enough to get that mission greenlit you know yeah and it's so we're gonna go to enceladus i'm spilling the beans a little bit but hopefully this entices you to listen to the next episode there's a great video with Bill Nye that explains Europa Clipper, sort of the idea. Hmm. Because of these plumes, the idea is like, well, why don't we just fly a satellite through the plume and collect data instead of landing? And it's like, Cassini already did that. Cassini did do that. Yeah. But it didn't really have the instruments to like detect life, you know? Yeah, it's not to take away, it's not to take away from Europa Clipper or anything yeah. like that, but... um. But you're right. You wonder, you know, if you could like reset the clock and say, all right, or or if you could easily switch paths, you know, like if this is just, uh, you know, Kerbal Space Program or something, (laughs) like, would you still pick Europa? I would pick Enceladus any day of the week. Wow. I mean, that's my unqualified non-planetary scientist opinion. But I know uh, I'm forgetting her name, but there's a very prominent planetary scientist. She was in this planet's documentary even. But I know that she is very pro Enceladus as well. Okay. Damn. So if you want to sound cool amongst your friends and be like, 
sound very indie. Be like, you know, they're sending a probe to Europa, but if I were in charge, I would send it to Enceladus. Yeah. Like, it's the hipster choice yes. of habitable, potentially habitable moons. Dang. You heard it here first, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Paper boys. Yeah. We're going to turn the tide on this. Actually, we're going to turn tide. Whoa. Nice one. I did not intend that. Yeah. I sh- nice one to you. Yeah, I'm the man. Uh, <laughs> no, I hope that I didn't bore anyone to death. I think we've, you know, we've gotten some feedback on this show that people like it more when we're excited about the thing we do, and they'd like to hear more about the stuff that we like to research. And this is it. So if you didn't like it, then maybe this podcast isn't for you. <laughs> maybe you should just listen to another episode that's coming <laughs> yeah. about a different topic. If you don't like it, then uh, skip next week. Yeah. Well, thanks, Charlie. I'm glad you shared your excitement for this. This is awesome. Yeah. Uh, Let's just turn this into a planetary science podcast. I mean, also, everyone go watch the, the the planets documentary on PBS. I'm going to go watch it. It's sick. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I just want to sit down and watch a show, you know, there's so many choices these days, but I find that Amazon Prime actually has the choices that fulfill <laughs> me uh, as a watcher and a viewer and a patron. If you go to audible.com slash paperboys, <laughs> uh, I mean, we're we're joking about making plugs, but... We actually do have a Patreon <laughs> that we would love if you checked out. Patreon.com slash paperboyspod. We have bonus episodes every month. This upcoming bonus episode we're going to do is about anti-vaccine movement. Yes. It's going to be really good. It is. And it's important. It'll save your kids. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot. There's been a lot of hype about it. And it's led to some pretty crazy outbreaks of diseases that we thought were under control. Yeah. Um, some people say it was... Uh, well specifically what we're going to cover just so you don't think that we're just like non-topically covering something that everyone already talks about we're going to specifically cover the paper that started the whole anti-vax movement that was a completely like fraudulent piece of science that's been revoked every author except for the first author has withdrawn their name from it uh it's been called the most damaging piece of misinformation of the 20th century wow yeah so we're going to cover that specific paper and talk about kind of where it all went wrong, I guess. Plus, if that's not incentive enough, if you subscribe by the end of this month, so by the end of 2019, you will be grandfathered into getting our bonus episode videos that we're in the process of making. Thanks for bearing with us on that. Yeah. They're, uh, we had an interesting beta test in December. But interesting beta tests, but uh, we got we just some bought new, new cameras. Bought some new cameras. Thank you to the patrons. The Patreon account has gone to that, and yeah. we're in the process of ramping that up. So. Uh, look forward to some added content. Yeah, I'm pumped to see that. And then starting January 1st, uh, the video content will be at our gravitational constant level, which is 667 a month. Whereas if you sign up before the end of the decade, it'll be at Pi Dollars. So also, I discovered there's another science podcast that has Pi Dollars as their first tier. And I feel so unoriginal now. No, it's like they're probably like the Leibniz. Of the situation, whereas like we're the Newton in terms of inventing calculus. Oh, okay. You know, well, they both have... independently discovered. Yeah, I think they're the Newton. <laughs> they have like several thousand dollars a month. That's not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, it's your fault, all you listeners. Uh, no, so anyway, long plug uh, coming to an end here. Check us out. Patreon.com slash paperboyspod is really the best way to support the show and to kind of engage with the show on, on another level. And you get to see our beautiful faces as we do this whole thing so yes who could ever refuse um <laughs> also check us out on social media our handle as always is at paper boys pod 
feel free to reach out if you have any comments, questions, or just want to talk to us. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and please join us next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Bring, bring. <laughs>